Genesis 39. We're going to be looking at Genesis 39. This is a reading of God's word. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had brought him from the Ishmaelites, who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him an overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in the house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. After a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master had no concern about anything in the house. He's put everything he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am. Nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day when he went to the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were there in that house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled, got out of the house. As soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled her house, she called to the men of the household and said, see, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as they heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me, fled out of the house. Soon as his master heard the word that his wife spoke to him, This is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him, put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Amen. This is a preaching, reading of God's word. Please join me in prayer. Father, we give you thanks for your word. Your word is a guide. Even in midst of chaotic times like the times that we live in, your word speaks truth to us. So I pray that, Lord, you would speak through your servant, that you would speak in a timely word. You would speak it clearly. Pray that we would respond to it in faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you just joined us, we've been looking through a series of sermons. And the theme of this series is about dreams and the idea of Joseph's dreams. We've been looking at the story of Joseph, and that's the key to his life. Joseph had a great dream that God had given to him. 
And Joseph's going to go through some hard times. He's going to get thrown in prison. He got sold out by his brothers. He's in slavery. But what kept Joseph going through all of that was a dream. Uh, he had a dream that God had given him, and it guided him throughout his whole life, especially through those hard times. Dreams, uh, today we're going to talk about the, the contrast to dreams. We're going to talk about counterfeit dreams. We're going to call those fantasies. Uh, dreams in the Bible are God-given. God gives them to you. They're all about him and his kingdom. But fantasies, they come from us, and they're not grounded in reality. And they're not about God. And we're going to look at the, uh, the idea of how fantasies can detract, can keep us away from the dream that God wants us to dream. We live in a culture that loves to indulge in fantasy. Uh, we see that with uh, video games, and we see that with costume play. People want to get immersed in another reality, in a virtual reality. We see that with pornography, which is everywhere you go online. And people want to indulge in sexual fantasies. We see that with the lottery. People buying them, even though they're minuscule odds to win, but they want to indulge in this fantasy, if, if I win, what would I do with it? Uh, fantasies, in many ways, they're harmless. In many ways, they're harmless. But when they take over your life and your imaginations, they have the ability to keep us from the dream that God wants us to dream. And we're going to look at that idea of how fantasies can detract us, can subvert us from seeing God's purpose in our lives. So today as we look at this idea of fantasy, we want to look at three things. One, the lure of it. Uh, but secondly, how to escape it. And finally, how to embrace the dream that God has for us. Those three things. And the first thing we're going to look at is this idea of fantasy. The story of Joseph uh, we looked at the last two weeks. Starts in chapter 37. Joseph has, uh, is the favorite son. Jacob has 12 sons. Joseph is the baby. And he is the, uh, the golden child. Uh, Jacob, his father, loves him more than any of the other brothers. Gives him this amazing Prada multicolored robe. And everyone is, all the other brothers are jealous of it. Uh, they're angry at Joseph and things reach a boiling point when Joseph has a dream and in this dream he's so proud of it tells all of his brothers in this dream you guys were all bowing down to me and he was like I wonder what that means brothers then he has another dream which the sun the moon the stars they're bowing down to him as well and when he tells them that dream and they, they have had enough I mean the brothers are so upset they plot his death and they find a perfect opportunity when he's there in a field alone together. But in a providential act, uh, they see a group of travelers traveling to Egypt. And instead of killing them, they sell Joseph into slavery. Chapter 37 is all about this, this idea. But in between chapter 37 and chapter 39, which I just read, is another chapter. It's probably, I would say, one of the strangest, strangest chapters in the Bible. And it seems like it's not about Joseph at all. Chapter 38, right smack dab in the middle of the beginning of Joseph's story, it's not about Joseph. It's about another brother, uh, another man named Judah. Judah is the fourth son of Jacob. Uh, and he's not like Joseph at all. Uh, Judah's, uh, Judah's life is a life of lust. Uh, Judah's life is, is 
a real contrast to Joseph. And the purpose of telling Judah's story right at the beginning is to contrast Judah's life, his lusts, his temporary desires for flesh, to contrast that with Joseph. Joseph had dreams. Judah had fantasies. And these fantasies kept him away from God's purpose in his life. Joseph was given a dream that was God-centered. It was about his kingdom ultimately. And we're to look at Judah as a contrast, a foil to Joseph. Uh, He's not controlled by his dreams at all, but by his flesh. How do we see that? Well, in chapter 38, this is the first three verses. We didn't read that, so I'll read it here. It says in Genesis 38, 1 to 3, It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adullamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughters of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Er. This is actually a story of how Judah got married, but it's told in the least romantic way possible. It's told in the least romantic way possible. Uh, and it's told in a very brute, crude way. It says, Judah saw a woman. She doesn't even have a name at this point. He saw her. He took her. He went into her. That's the story of the marriage. He saw her. He took her. He went into her. And they have a child. That's a marriage story, according to Judah. And you might, uh, you might think that that's, you might be very judgmental. It's easy for us to be judgmental about the Bible. It's easy for us to be judgmental about Judah. In many ways, we should. But I would say, if we're being self-reflective, it does seem crude and barbaric. But is it any different than our culture today? You know, so many people, they find a marriage partner purely on the basis of their looks. If you look at online dating apps, uh, people swipe left or right, not on the basis of anything other than people's appearance. They see they swipe, they take. And it's a sign of our times. It's a reflection of our own heart. Uh, Judah was not just, this is not just the way he found a wife. This is his, uh, this is his MO throughout his life. Later on in the passage, uh, we see that Judah has sex with a prostitute. Uh, and it turns back on him because this was not actually a prostitute. Uh, it was his daughter-in-law disguised as a prostitute. I told you this is a strange chapter. It's a strange chapter. And this woman, her name is Tamar, uh, knows all about her father-in-law, knows what he's driven by, and does that because she wants to be pregnant. Uh, And what we see is that Tamar knows her father-in-law is driven by his lust. This is not a one-time occurrence for Judah. This was his life. He was driven by his lust. He was driven by the now. He was driven by his desires. And those things were his God. For Judah, sex was a commodity. It was something that he bought, something that he got. It was never connected to a story. It was never connected to a person. Uh, In the Bible, sex is a sacred thing. It's always connected to a story. It's always connected to a life. It's always connected to children. It's always connected to promise. Not always all at once, but sex in the Bible is always connected to something larger than itself. That's why in the Bible, uh, sex outside of marriage is always considered immoral because you're disconnecting sex from promise. You're disconnecting it from a story that God is writing in your life. 
We live in a culture today where sex is elevated to a ultimate place, but it's disconnected from story and promise. A few months ago, um, I was reading the cover story of The Atlantic, and it had a cover story called The Sex Recession, called The Sex Recession. And in it, they cite multiple studies and scholars who say definitively that this generation of, of people are having less sex than the two previous generations before it. Most people think that they're having more sex, but in this issue, they're like, it's actually less than two previous generations. And scholars, academics, researchers have different theories, but most of them believe that the reason people are having less sex uh, is because of the rise of pornography and the social, social isolation of people. That people realize that it's easier to fantasize about the perfect person than to actually go and try to meet them. And then now they're isolated. Now they're fantasizing. It's all in their mind. It's all in their head. You know, C.S. Lewis, he, was, he wrote an article. Um, he wrote a letter to a friend who was struggling with lust. And he talks about this idea of the uh, sexual imagination, sexual fantasies. And he says that, uh, and he calls this a harem. He says so many men and so many women, they have these sexual fantasies of the head of multiple sexual partners. And this is what he says. He says, for the harem is always accessible, always subservient, calls for no sacrifice or adjustments, and can be endowed with erotic and psychological attractions which no woman can rival. Among those shadowy brides, he is always adored, always the perfect lover, makes no demand on our unselfishness. In the end, they become merely the medium through which he increasingly adores himself. After all, almost the main work of life is to come out of ourselves, out of the little dark prison we are all born in. The danger is that of coming to love the prison. C.S. Lewis says, you know, these sexual fantasies, nobody can compete with them. They're always endowed. They're always beautiful, perfect, always on demand. And that seems like a wonderful thing, but he says the problem with that is that it keeps you actually from meeting actual people. And, and what that does is that it traps you in the prison of yourself. It's only about you. It's only about self. And if he says, if you continue in that, you're going to be trapped in this prison of self. And you'll never be able to escape it. You'll never have another person who's going to encourage you and love you and challenge you and grow you. And he says there's a danger in loving the prison of self. Throughout this series, we're looking at this idea of God's dream for our life, God's vision for our lives. And one of the things that we want to see that keeps us from God's dream is these false fantasies. Fantasies that we have in our own mind, that distract us, that keep us from the place God wants us to go. And we can have various fantasies. Uh, We can live in the past. We can think about the fantasy of not making mistakes in the past, of making different choices. We can fantasize about wealth, about success. We can have sexual fantasies, and we can live in our mind. And it could distract us and keep us from the place God wants us to go. Uh, the, the Judah's life is an examination of a life of self, a la- life that is consumed with the now, 
with the flesh, with the present. But the second thing is this, that we're, we, we are to see a contrast. How do I escape that life? How do I escape that life? And this is the second point, avoiding these false fantasies. Judah was all about the now. Uh, he, Judah didn't have any dreams. He didn't have any dreams. It was just about the flesh. It was about the now. Uh, but in contrast, what we see is Joseph. Joseph, now he serves as that contrast of that life. Joseph is going to go through some hard times. But what gets him through that is he has a vision for what, where God is leading him. And those dreams bring him forward. And they also keep him from temptations that distract him from accomplishing those goals. We see that early in Joseph's time in Egypt in chapter 39. We meet him and he's in the service of Potiphar. Uh, Potiphar's an important man. He's uh, a very important uh, person in Pharaoh in his administration. He's a captain of, of the guard, a league group that was close to Pharaoh. Joseph starts out small, doing small things, overseeing some administrative tasks. But when, when, uh, when Potiphar sees Joseph and how God is blessing him, everything Joseph does turns to gold. Potiphar keeps promoting him, keeps having him in charge of more and more things until the point where Joseph is in charge of of, um, Potiphar's whole household. He's in charge of everything that Potiphar has. God is blessing him. Joseph is also faithful, faithful to the plan, faithful to where God is taking him. Uh, Joseph is noticed by Potiphar, but he's uh, he's also noticed by someone else. Uh, He's noticed by Potiphar's wife. In verse 6, Joseph is described in these words. It says in verse 6, Joseph is handsome in form and appearance. Sometimes in the Bible it says someone is uh, beautiful, uh, but only twice does the Bible ever say someone is handsome in form and appearance. Rachel uh, was like that, and so is Joseph. What does that mean? Handsome in form and appearance. Well, I would translate it, Joseph was chiseled and handsome. That's probably my, my translation. He was godly and he was bodily. He was ripped up and he was a handsome looking guy. I mean, he was all that. And uh, Joseph had it all going on in his life. That's probably why his brothers envied him as well. He had this beautiful rope and he was ripped up and beautiful. I mean, people are upset. at They are envious. Uh, Joseph, he's envied by his brothers, but he brings a lot of attraction from other people as well. Potiphar's wife has his eye on Joseph. She's looking at Joseph. And in verse 7, Potiphar's wife says, lie with me. There's a great Bible scholar. His name is Robert Alter. The brilliant, one of the most brilliant Hebrew scholars. Uh, and he says, Potiphar's wife must have said more than lie with me. She must have said all kinds of crazy, nasty things to Joseph. But they're just some, he just summarizes it by saying, lie with me. There's probably a lot else she said to him. But the Bible summarizes by saying, Potiphar's wife says to him, lie with me. Be with me. And uh, what does Joseph say? What is Joseph's response? Joseph could have said, thought to himself, well, you know, it's just sex. It's not going to hurt anybody. In fact, I bet Potiphar's sleeping around as well. That was very common in ancient times. It's not hurting anybody. Secondly, Joseph could have said, well, I have to do this. She's in charge. Uh, 
if I don't do this, I might get thrown in prison. I might get executed, which actually does happen. He does get thrown in prison. I have no choice in this matter. This woman is under my, uh, I'm under her authority. I can't deny her request. I have nothing to do but to say yes to this woman. He could have done that. He could have said that, but he doesn't. What does Joseph say to Potiphar's wife in verse 8? It says, he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master had no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything he has in my charge. He's no greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph gives uh, Potiphar's wife three really powerful reasons why he can't do it. He said, number one, it's a betrayal of my responsibilities. I can't do this. I've been entrusted with all of this. Secondly, it's a betrayal of his, her marriage. He says, you are his wife. I respect him and I respect you. I respect your marriage. How could I, how could I destroy that which is so sacred? But finally and ultimately, Joseph says, this is a great sin against God. It's great wickedness against God. How can I possibly do something so wicked in the eyes of my God? Gives him those three reasons why he will not commit that sin. In verse 11, uh, Potter's for his wife, she, she's, just, she's just not having it. She's not taking no for an answer. So in verse 11, she looks for an opportunity. Nobody else is in the house. And she corners and physically grabs Joseph. And she says again to him, lie with me. This is it. This is the moment. In verse 13, it says, and as soon as she saw that he had, Joseph runs out of the house after she grabs him by the collar, leaves his clothing behind. And in verse 13, it says, as soon as she saw that she had laid, left the garment in her hand, and, that, and he fled out of the house. Uh, one of the things that we see with Joseph is that he realized that he could not win this fight. With temptation, sometimes we've got to fight temptation. Sometimes we've got to flight. We've got to run from temptation. And all of us, whether you're single or married, we have to fight for sexual purity. We have to fight for it. Whether you're single, whether you're married, there's a fight that we have to fight. Sometimes we have to fight uh, for purity. Uh, what Joseph did in the very beginning with Potiphar's wife is she fought for purity. Uh, he said in a very concrete ways, this is not right, this is not appropriate. He drew boundaries between him and Potiphar's wife. He made it very clear. He stood up. He says, this is not right, this is not good. If you're being sexually harassed, you need to stand up. You need to make it very clear and make it very known. This is inappropriate. This is not right. I will not engage in this behavior. I will not consent to it. Sometimes we have to fight for sexual purity. But other times, we see Joseph, what he does is he, he takes flight. Joseph realizes at this point, this is a battle he cannot win. He's not going to win this one. So instead of fighting, he leaves. He takes flight. He leaves his clothing behind. He realizes that the longer he's there, the more he's going to succumb to the temptation of being there. And he realizes that he has to, he has to retreat. And sometimes if we want to be sexually pure, we have, to, we have to run from temptation. 
We have to keep our distance from people and situations that can compromise us. We have to know our own flesh and the places that we fall. And we have to put barriers in place so that we would not fall. Joseph fights, uh, but he also takes flight. And when Joseph uh, takes flight, a Potiphar's wife realizes she can't win this either. So what does Potiphar's wife do? Well, she has his clothing as proof. And she tells all the people around her, and she tells the guards, Joseph tried to assault me. She turns it all back on him. Uh, she makes a false accusation. She gets angry. She gets upset. When Potiphar hears that he's upset, understandably, and he throws Joseph in prison. And one of the things that we learned is that there's a cost to Joseph faith, Joseph's faithfulness. There's a cost to it. But think about this. If Joseph had succumbed to Potiphar's wife's sexual advances, he might still have turned out to be in prison. He could have been caught. He could still have been in prison. But now, in prison, the dreams that God had for him might have been destroyed. And Joseph, what he did in prison, even though he was thrown in prison, God's dream for him was still alive. And in that prison, he's going to be interpreting dreams He's going to rise in prison. He's eventually going to be released and be second in charge of all of Egypt because he did not let a fantasy and his flesh keep him from God's dream and God's promises. Joseph was faithful. He didn't let these false fantasies ruin his life. He didn't let it get a detour to God's plan for his life. You know, a lot of people, um, they've been obsessed with a book and a Netflix series by Marie Kondo. Marie Kondo, I've talked about this in a sermon before. She is all about tidying up. She has a Netflix series that has popularized this idea. And people are kind of going all crazy with it. And one of the things she says is that she says, get every single thing in your house. I put it on your bed and ask yourself, does this bring, does this spark joy in me? You know, a lot of people are going crazy with that. And asking all kinds of questions about does this spark joy. Soon women are going to be looking at their husbands and be like, do you spark joy in me? I don't know. Thank you. Next. Let's, let's move on. People are going crazy with this idea of sparking joy. But I have to admit that I actually watched that series and um, I tried to tidy up my, my room this last month. Not my whole house. I'll take three years, but I just tried it with my room. I just tried my room. And I have this massive, uh, I have this nightstand, and it has every cord in the house in it. And it has all kinds of batteries. Some work, some, some don't work. And every time I need to take something out of this nightstand, I have to basically take everything out of it. Do you have some, some cabinets like that? Find what's going on, and then I put everything back in the most random order. And so this last month, I cleaned it all out. I cleaned out all of my, my chest, cleaned out my entire closet, and folded everything into thirds, like Marie Kondo told me. And I have to say, my room, I'm much more relaxed in my room now. I know where everything is. I know where all the things in my nightstand are. When I need to find something, I know exactly where it is. Like decluttering has actually de-stressed my life. I have room to breathe. I know where things are. I can relax. You know, if you think about it, so many of us have very cluttered thought lives. Like our mind is a mess with ideas, with images, with fantasies, with all kinds of junk that we think about. So many of us fantasize about all of these things that clutter up our life. 
all kinds of false fantasies that just keep us stuck in rewind. Imagine in your life, if you took all that clutter in your life, your thought life, your fantasy life, things like that, and you just let that all go. How much space in your mind and your heart would you have to start dreaming new dreams, to start, start thinking God's thoughts for following a new path that God has for you? Think about the peace that you would have in your life. I don't have any of that negative thought anymore. My mind is no longer in the gutter. I can save space now for things that are beautiful, things that are true, things that are noble. Imagine how changed your life would be. And think about this thing. This is the final point, embracing God's dream. And this is the place that God wants to bring you, is to let go of those false fantasies that are all about you, all about now, and start embracing something more beautiful. God has a more beautiful plan for your life. Uh, God's dreams are much better than your fantasy. Let me repeat that. God's dream for your life, they're way better than any fantasies you've concocted for yourself. And sometimes we have a hard time believing in that. Like Joseph, he's in prison, and he must have been thinking, God, I don't know where your dreams are taking me. I'm right up, I'm trying to be faithful to you in this place, but now I'm in prison. How do I, how do I know you're gonna take me out of this dark, dark alley? How do I know you're with me? And the ultimate answer that we come to is that we see in the story of Jesus a greater Joseph. You know, what's interesting about Joseph is that he had to overcome this temptation because God had a greater dream and plan for him. You know, if you look at Jesus' life, Jesus is a greater Joseph. Right at the beginning of it, he too was tempted. He was taken up to a great mountain in Luke chapter 4, verse 5 to 7. And he was given a temptation. This temptation was designed uh, to ruin the plan God the Father had for Jesus. And this is what it says. And the devil took him up and showed him the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all the authority and their glory, for it had been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Joseph was given this temptation of flesh and temporary uh, to subvert this plan that God had for him. Jesus, at the very beginning of his ministry, the devil wants to subvert those plans. He doesn't just offer him sex and pleasure. He offers him all the kingdoms of this world. He says, just do one thing. Worship me. And by worshiping the devil, it would subvert every plan. Every plan that God the Father had for Jesus on that earth. To rescue humanity. But what does Jesus say in verse 8? He says, It is written, You shall not worship, you shall worship the Lord your God, and in Him only shall you serve. Jesus does not relinquish God's plan for His life, for His ministry. He's not going to indulge in that false fantasy that the devil has for Him. He resolutely, throughout the Gospel of Luke, one of the images of Jesus is that he sets his face like flint to to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was to be the place where he died. And throughout his ministry, how hard it was, it always said Jesus' face. He was always looking to that plan, to that place. He was never going to divert from it. He's never going to take some kind of false fantasy away from it. He was set on God's plan. Why? Why was it so important for Jesus to go to the cross, to die, to resurrect. Hebrews 12, 1-2 kind of gives us some insight into that. 
And it says that Jesus, what was on his mind as he went to the cross, is it, it says, for the joy set before him endured the cross. That's the idea that the joy of Jesus was that he knew that through the cross, he was going to rescue us. That we were his joy. We were on Jesus' heart. And he endured all of that because he loves us. And he wants to be with us. And he wants to take our curse, resurrect, to bring us back into fellowship with him, with us. That we were Jesus' joy. And really, the only way to overcome any kind of temptation in life is that we experience something far greater than that. The joy of Jesus. The joy of knowing him. The joy of being in relationship with him. That has to get bigger and bigger in our lives. Uh, the great theologian Augustine, before he became a Christian, was a sex addict. And he struggled with that all throughout his life. Uh, but he came to a point where he realized that he would always be wrestling and restless until he found his ultimate rest in God. And one of his great insights is that all of us, the key problem in our life is that our loves are disordered. Uh, in other words, he says it's okay to love food, it's okay to love sex, it's okay to love entertainment and recreation, but the problem is we love those things more than God. And the key way we rectify that is the love of God has to become so great in our lives that all the other things become lesser lovers. And he realized and he started embracing this idea of the love of God. That was his one thing. Jesus is the greatest lover. The, uh, he, his love will always satisfy. He will never let you down. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And we need to live in that love. And as we close, uh, God wants you to live free. Uh, God wants you to live free from your false fantasies. He wants something bigger in your life than your false fantasies. His dreams for you are beautiful. They're big. And this morning, maybe you can start thinking about what are some false fantasies. There's a difference between fantasies and dreams. Fantasies are about me, and I made them. Dreams are about God, and they're for his glory. Sometimes we believe it's a dream when it's actually a fantasy, and we need the wisdom to discern between the two. Is it a dream or is it a fantasy? And I need some discernment and realizing that there's a difference between that. I need to let my fantasies die and I need to start pursuing God's dream. This morning, think about those false fantasies in your life. Things that are just not true, that are not from you, that are from you, not from God. And say, God, help me to stop thinking and obsessing about those things. They are killing me. And God, what is your dream? Let me start using this year, in the beginning of the year, to start dreaming new dreams. Dreams for a healthy marriage. Dreams for uh, healthy relationships. Dreams are used, being used by God for his kingdom. Dreams for blessing the city. God, help me to dream some new dreams. And when we dream them, our lives will flourish like Joseph's did. Uh, we'll be in lockstep and God will bless us because those are his dreams. And all of God's promises, they're all true in Christ Jesus. And one day the dream will be reality. One day all of us will see and experience the glory of God for us in Jesus Christ. Amen. Please join me in prayer. Father, we give you thanks this morning as we come into this place. And Lord, we use this time as a time of confession. So many of us are so worn out because we've been chasing some false fantasies. 
and our lives and our spirit is so guilt-ridden and so in pain because we've been chasing these false realities and we are very isolated and we feel very depressed and guilt-ridden and has led us nowhere God, thank you that Jesus is a friend of sinners, that he loves prostitutes, he loves adulterers, he loves people who've blown it, and he forgives us. This morning I pray that as you forgive us and as you heal us, that you would bring us some new dreams. I pray that you'd give us wisdom to know discernment, to know the difference between fantasies and dreams. pray that you would let these false fantasies die a quick death. And I pray that, Lord, you'd replant in us dreams of your kingdom. Pray that we would love the music of Jesus, all that his love and his faithfulness and his promises are. Pray that we'd cultivate that in our lives. Thank you that you love us so much. Thank you that your dream for us will never die. That there's no amount of failure or temptation or battles that you can't overcome. Thank you that your story for us has always new beginnings. So pray that we would join beyond that story, that we would love to walk with you. So we give you thanks this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.